Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Scripture reading for in preparation for our sermon. We're going to have a part two as it relates to uh, evolution refuted. And so we're going to be in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I'm assuming it will also not just be there, but we'll be back in Genesis 1 as well. Uh, if you want to turn there, I'll read that portion of Scripture. Uh, and then we will dive into our sermon. It says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means, these, the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up, stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with, one, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, haste, for the ha- waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Actually, this might die. (laughs) Sorry. Technical difficulties. Pause. Oh, that one. I use Kevin's. I use Kevin's. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity that we do have to come and to study your scriptures and to think about your words to us today, Lord. We... Uh, We do thank you that you are a good God who gives us graciously um, all things that we don't deserve, Lord. Uh, We thank you for the grace that you've shown to us in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to think clearly today about the 
subject hand and what your word teaches to us about uh, creation, Lord, and how that applies to our life and how that's relevant, a relevant topic to think through today in your world. Thank you for all you do. In your son's name I pray. Amen. And when we think about a subject as complicated as evolution, I know that we did a lesson on that last week, and we could probably do many, many, many lessons in which we're trying to uh, demonstrate or show how the Bible seems to interact with uh, the world's perspective of origins. Uh, we could do many sermons on that, but uh, one of the things to realize at the very outset of our study is uh, it, it does take a good deal of humility on our part um, to many times acknowledge the obvious. And the obvious reality is that as we think about events that have happened thousands of years ago, uh, we, as as people who believe the Bible, we believe that there are events uh, particularly as it relates to creation, that are events that happened thousands of years ago uh, that we weren't around to watch. Uh, but then if you're an individual who believes in an old earth that's been around for millions and millions and millions of years, even more so in your se- in your case, if you had any, any sense, you ought to acknowledge uh, how much we are in over our heads when we're thinking about uh, describing things that are so distant and removed from us. Um, now, as we attempt to understand the world, we need to realize we're in over our heads. Uh, in, in 2015, I remembered reading a few articles about a forensic medical artist who had supposedly given us the most accurate picture of Jesus to date. Perhaps uh, as you were scrolling through social media, you remember that article and that picture that was put forward. Um, now, most of uh, articles of this sort are fairly sensational in terms of the claims being made. Uh, you, you have to kind of you know, sell it pretty pretty well in order to get people to pay attention. Uh, but uh, I, I thought it would be interesting to read through uh, some of the uh, methodology and the methods that were being employed to accomplish such a impossible task. And so you're 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 trying to put forward a picture that you think represents what Jesus would have looked like. Um, Despite the fact that we have no such picture, and and you, fair, you and it seems like these articles are fairly confident that we got some sort of rough and close approximation of what he looked like, and so that automatically piques my curiosity. What are you going to do to, uh, to 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 um, do that sort of thing? And so here here's what I read: Matthew's descriptions in the events at Gethsemane, uh, Gethsemane, basically where Jesus is being arrested offers an obvious clue to the face of Jesus. It is clear that his features were typical of Galilean Semites in his era. And so the first step for Neve, which was the forensic medical um, uh, examiner, Neve and his research team was to acquire skulls from near Jerusalem, the region where Jesus lived and preached. Semite skulls of this type had previously been found by Israeli archaeologist experts who shared them with Neve. Uh, with three well-preserved specimens from the time of Jesus in hand, Neve used computerized tomography to create x-ray slices of the skulls, thus revealing minute details about each one's structure. Special computer programs then evaluated reams of information about known measurements of the thickness of soft tissue at key areas on the human faces. This made it possible to recreate the muscles and skin overlying a representative Semite skull. The entire process was accomplished using software that verified the results with anthropological data. From this data, the researchers built a digital 3D reconstruction of the face. Next, they created a cask of the skull 
Layers of clay matching the thickness of the facial tissues specified by the computer program were then applied along with simulated skin. The nose, the lips, and eyelids were then modeled to follow the shape determined by the underlying muscles. Now, there's obviously other factors that went into them doing this sort of thing, but I, I do want to point out something. I mean, before you're blown away by how impressive and technological this all is, you might want to consider what you just heard, okay? In order to reconstruct Jesus' face, a forensic medical examiner learned, he learned from the fact that the guards did not immediately know the identity of Jesus among the men present with him, that Jesus must have had features typical of a Galilean Semites of his era. So he's basically saying if the guards didn't immediately know who he is, he must not have been dramatically different from everyone else around him. Uh, therefore, what he did was he took three skulls found from that time period and used those to determine what Jesus must have looked like. So just let that sink in for a second. He took three skulls from individuals in that era, and then he used a bunch of complicated technology, and he's trying to put forward something that he thinks uh, is a rough approximation of what Jesus looked like now. Imagine for a second, because that's all it really takes. Just imagine that Jesus were a 21st century white guy, and we were to find three white skulls and try to determine what a typical white guy looks like. Do you think that you're going to have enough information in order to be able to draw the appropriate conclusions? I mean, people come in all shapes and sizes. Um, in some sense, it would be quite an arrogant and foolish and ridiculous task to even attempt to do this sort of thing. Uh, suppose you were to say that Jesus was a 21st century black guy or an Asian guy. Uh, there are mar remarkable differences among peoples of different ethnicities. Uh, and, and, the, and the reality is that uh, when you are trying to do something along these lines, you are approaching, uh, you are doing something that's fairly impossible to do. And we ought to, we ought to recognize that and, and not be blown away by the scientific sounding words that are involved in the process. Now, uh, as I've watched nature shows in my life, one of the things that has always stood out to me was how arrogant uh, these nature shows come across. Uh, this, was, this was impressed upon me uh, even further as I started interacting with biblical studies. As I've interacted with biblical studies, I'm looking at examples like the ones that I've just described. Uh, and I'm, I'm listening to the claims that are being made about areas that I know something about. Uh, I'm listening to the claims that are being made and the remarkable conclusions that are being drawn from just little scraps of evidence. Uh, if you think you can tell me what Jesus looks like on the basis of uncovering three skulls of people and tell me what the standard Galilean Jew looks like, I think that you're nuts, okay? Uh, but one of the things to realize is as you listen to nature shows, you're going to realize that there is a great deal of extrapolation that is happening in, in the narratives that they are putting forward. Now, to use an example on another sort of area, uh, C.S. Lewis was a remarkable individual in many ways who uh, was a very sharp thinker, very, very intelligent person, a very good writer. And as it relates to history in general, one of the things that he has always cautioned people against doing uh, he's often cautioned people against trying to answer the why question of history. Oftentimes, it, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier, even though we're still in over our heads. It's a little bit easier sometimes to answer the what question, meaning what happened. Uh, uh, it's, you know, we ought to have the humility to realize that 
We may even get that wrong, but trying to answer the why question is even more difficult now. Uh, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis uh, would, would uh, caution us against doing such a thing. Why? Well, because he was the kind of individual who was famous to such a degree that even while he was living, there would be contemporary biographers uh, seeking to explain the pivotal events in his life and the motives that he had at the time and the influences that uh, went into his uh, writing and his decisions. It's the kind of thing that when you read uh, sketches of historical figures just flows naturally off the tongue. And one of the things that he was saying as he's reading these accounts of his life and the big decisions in his life and the things that he's doing, uh, he, he would comment that they were always without exception, wrong in what they're putting forward as it relates to his motives. So they were always, without exception, wrong. Uh, they didn't get him right. Uh, and now, when you, when you think about that, he, this is his conclusion. If they get me wrong every single time, if they get me wrong every single time, and I'm alive in a shared culture as them, what do you think they're doing to people of different cultures who are much more distant and removed from me? Uh, and so, you know, as we think about this task of, of doing history, when we think about this task of speaking to events that are very distant and removed from us, one of the things that we ought to realize is that as you're watching nature shows, uh, many, many times what you are listening to, I, I think we have the sense as we're watching these sorts of things, that there's a vast reservoir of information that they're drawing on that's factoring into the narratives that they're putting forward. Uh, but many times what you are listening to is exercises in creative writing uh, that are resulting in widespread generalizations about the character, personality, and social interactions of individuals made on the basis of an observation of a tool, for example. And so, I mean, oftentimes, if you listen to the conclusions that are drawing from the information they're giving, they're going, going to tell you, hey, look, we found this little tool in the ground. <laughs> and they're going to draw uh, massive generalizations about the character, the personality, the social interactions of the individuals who, who made this tool. And, and if, you're, if you just stop for a minute, you might say, was it a good tool? Was it a bad tool? Was it a standard tool at the time? How do we know uh, if we only have one tool? <laughs> Right? Uh, uh, was he a good artesian who put uh, forth that tool? Was it a good example of their craftsmanship, or was it a rough example that a child made? Uh, you know, you realize in the in the in the scope of doing history that there are many times in which we just um, where we are making grand extrapolations on the basis of very little, very 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 little information, and we ought to realize in, in humility that there are there are things. Uh, that are often very much over our heads. Now, as, as you interact with a subject like this, one of the things to realize is that uh, you think about the Christian's interaction with the scientific endeavor. Many times you, um, you have individuals, whether or not it's secular society, uh, putting forward this kind of mischaracterization of Christians or it's Christians who are actually owning it uh, and... and uh, and uh, confirming the stereotype or something else. But there is a perspective that many Christians are anti-science. Uh, and the reality is that uh, when we're thinking about this, there really is a div big difference between being anti-science and having a healthy skepticism of grandiose claims to knowledge, uh, particularly as it relates to events that we are 
very, very far removed from. So the Christian ought not to have any um, hesitation at all with this, uh, the scientific method. If you, were to, if you were to think about the scientific method as it's commonly put forward, we, sh- we ought to have no hesitation with that method uh, as a method of trying to uh, discover information and come to various conclusions and tests or hypothesis. Uh, we, we ought to have no uh, uh, skepticism sort towards science properly done, but the, the, the reality is, here's the reality, uh, science is not a neutral endeavor. So science is not a neutral endeavor. Uh, your starting assumptions are going to affect your conclusions, and that's what I want to talk about today. So there's no point in uh, Christians. Be, Christians shouldn't be anti-science by any means because we're the ones who invented it, and it's the kind of thing that arose from a Christian worldview and not uh, many of your Eastern worldviews, uh, which are characterized by... Um, order and chaos and everything else. Christianity is the soil on which science developed. Uh, We're the ones who invented it. We're not anti-science, but we do realize that science is not neutral, and our starting assumptions will affect our conclusions. Now, uh, the reason why I brought up Second Peter today is because I'm going to talk about some things that are in Second Peter very briefly uh, for the sake of Truth and advertising, obviously, I'm not going to be dealing with this passage uh, with all that's in there. But I do want to point out some things that are found in there. Uh, But this is an interesting passage, which is related to our topic matter. And we're going to be thinking about some things in Genesis as well. Uh, But 2 Peter 3.1 says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And so, the things that you're going to find here, yeah, I want to try to explain the logic of the passage here in First in Second uh, Peter for you. Uh, the logic is this: uh, Jesus says, "Behold, I'm coming quickly. I'm going to return soon." So the the early church had an expectation that Jesus would be coming back soon. Uh, many of them thought that he would be coming back in their very lifetime. And so what they were not expecting is they weren't expecting uh, it to be an extended and long period of time at first. Um, so one of the reasons in particular why many of the uh, Christians early on, uh, they converted to Christianity, they left their former lifestyle, and they uh, are all gathering together in the temple every single day uh, with the apostles, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they didn't necessarily have a, a, a immediate impulse to move on from that. Uh, part of them uh, were, uh, they, they didn't have it, uh, they basically enjoyed this fellowship, they enjoyed the teaching, they enjoyed uh, the uh, time of learning. Uh, but then the reality is the world keeps on going, and you can't just functionally be a community of people without any jobs. And so when you think about the, the letters in Thessalonians, one of the things that Paul is going to say is, hey, if you're not willing to work, you ought not to be fed, right? 
Well, why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because you have an, a group of individuals who are expecting Jesus to come back in, at any point uh, and fairly quickly. And so it might not make sense to go start a new life and, and, uh, and do everything that the Bible is commanding because they're sitting there waiting around for Jesus to return. So, uh, you know, all, when you think about that kind of situation, all you can do really is um, if Jesus is going to come back any minute, does it make sense for me to move on and go get a job and do all this? Uh, so what what's happening at that point is all the early Christians are selling all their land, their houses, their property, and they're trying to provide for this massive group of people, but you can't sustain it forever. It's not the kind of thing you can sustain forever. But I say all that just to say that what they're doing at that point is they're expecting Jesus to come back uh, in their lifetime. That's the immediate sort of expectation that many of them have uh, based on some of the things that Jesus is saying. And so then Peter's writing this letter in response to those who are scoffing at this claim, right? So you, you have many people who expect he's going to come back immediately. He doesn't. And then you have individuals who are scoffing at this claim. So uh, Peter says, uh, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. And both of them I'm storing up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So then verse 3, knowing this, first of all, all scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming, right? So Jesus is coming back. Where's the promise of his coming? Now, how do they argue with the fact they basically don't believe that Jesus is going to be returning? What's their argument? What's it based on? What is, what is their starting point? Well, they say, um, where is the promise of his coming? Verse 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they are from the beginning of creation. What are they saying? What are they saying? We've never seen Jesus come back before, right? So think about it. We've never seen anything like that. You're saying he's going to return. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, but ever since the fathers fell asleep... You know, throughout the whole history of the creation, we haven't seen anything like that. We haven't seen any evidence of some sort of supernatural thing. And so what are they saying? What's the presupposition there? The present's the key to the past, right? What we observe in the present, we can read back into the past. Uh, what we see in the present, we can read into the future, right? That's what they're saying. They're saying, right now, based on my limited perspective of things, I've never seen uh, something like that. When I look back, I don't see anything like that. So therefore, it can't happen. I don't care what the Bible says, right? I don't care what you guys are saying, Peter. Uh, he's not coming. He's not going to be returning. Uh, so they say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Now, how does Peter argue with that? Well, you just look at the present and you look at the past and you determine the future. How does Peter argue with that? You say that nothing, uh, nothing different can happen in the future than what's happening right now because that's all that you see. Well, he, he, he says, verse 5, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. What is he trying to say? Well, people living in the time of the flood had never seen a global flood either, had they? But God said there would be one. So just because they'd never seen something like that before doesn't mean it can't happen and doesn't mean that God's limited in any way and doesn't mean that that's not exactly what did happen. So, so if we were to think about this in modern scientific sorts of terms, uh, you have a group of individuals who are basically saying, hey, I'm looking at what's happening in the present, and I'm going to predict what happens in the past and what happens in the future in some sort of absolute way, and I don't have any category for some sort of miraculous intervention by God, right? So all I have is the here and now. All I have is my life. And so when you think about individuals who are doing science in general, what do they have? They have their life. They have a few years that they're given. Uh, you know, you go to university, you study these things, you, you get a degree in these things, and you maybe, what, spend 20, 30, 40 years writing on these things and reflecting on these things. And when, what you ought to realize is that that's a very small amount of time 
that you have to observe the world in the scope of all of creation. That's a very small amount of time that you have to observe the world, and you don't really have a whole lot of data. You don't have all the data that there is to be had. Uh, And so there is data that might be outside of your limited experience that would uh, reinterpret a lot of your conclusions. And so here's the point. Science is not neutral. Your starting assumptions will affect your conclusions. So what is the starting assumptions of atheistic, I want to put it that way, atheistic naturalistic science? What are the starting assumptions? Well, they don't believe in the supernatural. They believe the physical world is all that exists. That's their starting assumption. And so what they're saying is that I'm going to take what I observe in the present, I'm going to read it back into the past, and I'm going to read it back in the future, and I can explain everything that there is just with my limited, uh, uh, my limited perspective in the uh my limited perspective in the present right now. Well, Peter is saying, hey, there's individuals doing that same sort of thing as it relates to Jesus' coming. And one of the things that he wants them to realize is that just because uh, you might not have seen such a thing happen so far doesn't mean it can't happen. And there's been people throughout the history of the world who, who haven't seen such a thing happen before either. And they got it dramatically and drastically wrong because they didn't actually listen to the word of God at that point. Uh, therefore, when judgment came, they were in an awful situation just like you will be. Uh, so when we're thinking about this fact that science is not neutral, that your starting assumptions will affect your conclusions... What we have to do then as we're doing science and we're trying to argue with atheistic science, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to have to ask simple questions. What starting point best explains the evidence that we see? So you have different starting points, right? You have different starting points. Uh, You have the starting point of uh, God creating the world, the heavens and the earth, everything that you... Uh, see today at a specific point in time, right? So he, he uh, in, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, just like the Bible says. You either have an option of saying there's a creator God who brought everything that we you can see today into existence out of nothing, or you have a starting point that says that somehow nothing created everything. And so what one of the things that we need to realize is as we're thinking about this kind of subject, you're going to have to ask yourself, which starting point best explains what you see. First one, does it make more sense to assume that nothing created everything or that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? So let me say it again. Does it make more sense to assume that nothing created everything or that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? You know, when I was a very young child, I uh, was thinking about issues related to creation, and one of the things that never seemed to be, uh, for me to be reasonable, was the fact that uh, you would have individuals who were attempting to explain how everything that we can see with all of its unique design and uh, majesty that you see in the world today, the, the massive universe that you see that exists uh, what never seemed to make sense, and I haven't really been able to get over it, honestly, or make it make sense, but it never really seemed to make sense that this, that everything that you could see, you see today, um, just spontaneously arose into existence from nothing without any sort of intelligent help there. So I, I, I there's, um, you know, if we're, if you're looking around the world, 
and you're seeing the kind of order and design that is present in the world and the, uh, the massive universe that is in many ways humbling. I mean, you can just go to the beach and look out at the, at the ocean and feel fairly insignificant fairly quickly. Uh, when you look out up at the stars at night, assuming you can see them and the sky is not filled with smog, I suppose. Um, but uh, when you do see them, there is a majesty there that ought to be humbling in certain ways. Uh, but never in the scope of my life have I ever thought it was even remotely reasonable to believe that somehow everything that I see could come spontaneously from nothing. Uh, you know, if you're asking me to believe a miracle, uh, I'd rather believe that there's an intelligent God producing it than non-intelligence producing it. And so uh, that's that's one of the things that, that science really has no answer to, really, when you, when you think about it. Um, they might be able to impress, uh, atheist scientists uh, might be able to impress you with a, a lot of their technical language and big words, but you, you, you might never, lo- you might realize that you never really lose this basic reality that, you know, things don't just pop up and appear from nothing, <laughs> okay? Uh, I've never really seen that happen, and I'm sure that you haven't either. And so, um, when, when, when some, if, that, if something like that were to happen, we would call it magic. And so, uh, one of the things to realize is that if we're talking about some kind of Big Bang, evolutionary kind of starting point, one of the things you need to realize is that you're being asked to believe in magic, Okay. <laughs> And so, uh, which, make, which makes more sense, to believe in random magic, unguided by intelligence, or, or God, uh, a uh, creator who's outside of time and space, uh, speaking words uh, of power that are bringing forth the world that we see. Now, which starting point best explains the evidence? Two, does it make more sense to assume that simple life forms evolved over time into very complex life forms, or that God created man distinct from the animals, each according to their kind. So you have two starting points, right? Uh, you talk about the uh, project of naturalistic science. You have a, a starting point that says that we're going to try to attempt to explain how, how um, the variety of life that we see uh, and how it came about, and so there's a narrative, a creative uh, exercise in creative writing, if you want to call it that, that is being put forward to you uh, for your consideration that uh, man is simply the top of the food chain and a long list of evolutionary changes that started from very simple life forms. So, uh, you know, you, what evolutionary biologists are trying to do, they're trying to explain the origin of life for you. And the narrative that they've advanced is that life started with very simple, simple organisms, and gradually over time through small changes, uh, guided by the mechanism of natural selection, these small little uh, um, organisms, microscopic organisms, get more and more complex and more and more, more, and more complex. And uh, pretty soon you're going to get uh, animals and then you're going to get, uh, at the end of the line, you're going to get humans. And so how did it happen? What's the narrative that's being put forward? What, what is the plan that's being put forward? What happened because of small changes over time? And so what I want to ask you is, does it make more sense to assume that simple life forms evolved over time into very complex life forms or that God created man distinct from the animals, each according to their kind? Now, the reality is that um, living in the time that we live in, we in many ways are privileged to a lot more information than people uh, in past generations have been um, privileged to have. And so uh, there was an attempt hundreds of years ago 
to put forward a theory of, of evolution uh, that many people believe as a faith object. It's an object of faith for them. They weren't actually there at that time. It is their starting point. It is something that they're, they're holding on to and trying to prove at all costs, despite uh, all the evidence that we see in many ways. Um, but the reality is the more that we learn about the world and about God's design of the creation that we live in, the more that we realize that, that life is irreducibly complex. It's irreducibly complex. So that's a big expression that I'm going to try to explain what it means. Uh, if something is irreducibly complex, uh, what that means is that it is complicated to a degree in which if you take any one of its constituent parts out of the equation, it no longer functions in the way that it should, okay? So it doesn't take... A, so if you think about something like a mousetrap, for instance, a mousetrap isn't incredibly complex, right? It's just a board with a spring and a, you know, a lever mechanism or something, a metal thing that when the mouse steps on a pressure plate, it snaps and traps them underneath it. And so it's not an incredibly complicated mechanism, is it? I mean, when you think about it, it's not very complicated at all. It has a few parts. But one of the things that you realize about that mechanism, though, is if you take any of the parts out, it ceases to function, right? Do you understand? So you take the spring out, you no longer have a mousetrap. What you have is a, a swiveling bar on a piece of wood with a pressure plate that does nothing, right? So you take the spring out, it all comes apart. You take the swiveling bar thing off, and you're, you're left with something that doesn't work. So if something is irreducibly complex, here's the point. You, you can't make gradual changes to it over time, and it actually be anything. Does that make sense? Now, now think about something like that, and then think about how complex the human eyeball is. And you're going to realize that it, it is impossible for gradual changes over time to slowly form into a fully formed eyeball. It doesn't really work that way. What you have to have is massive changes <laughs> that are going to happen in order to have something that's actually doing anything at all, right? Um, the more that we learn about science, the more that we realize that uh, that the human body and life is so complex. It's way more complex than a stupid mousetrap, right? It's way more complex than that, and it's impossible for life just to gradually, over time, get better and better and better and better. You need a lot of changes that are going to happen at once for any of these, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for anything to actually usefully be changing, okay? So... Uh, the, the reality is, does it make more sense to assume that simple life forms evolved over time into very complex life forms or that God created men uh, distinct from the animals, each according to their kind? When we look at the world today, what do we see? Do we see any evidence of, of uh, variation between uh, sp- species? We see variation within species, but not from one species to another species. And despite our best efforts, and with all of our efforts and all of our intelligence and all of our brains being put into the project of trying to create some kind of new hybrid animal or something else, one of the things we realize is it doesn't just happen on its own, right? It doesn't just happen on its own. That isn't the way things work. Uh, When we observe the kind of changes within life that we observe... One of the things that we're realizing is that 
that things get worse. They don't typically get better, <laughs> okay? Um, uh, if evolution was true, I think we would have every right to expect that there would probably be some mutants living among us in an X-Men sort of way. Uh, but the reality is none of us throughout the history of the world has ever observed that we know, that, you know, the written word. We, we haven't noticed any changes in the life that we see. And so you're asking me to believe by faith that that must have happened despite the fact that it seems illogical and unreasonable and, and life is so completely complex that that doesn't even make any sense. Uh, but the reason why you believe it is because you believe it by faith uh, because that's the only thing that you have to explain the existence of a very uh, intelligent world apart from uh, the uh, intelligent hand of a creator. All right, so does it make more sense to assume that nothing created everything or that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Does it make more sense to assume that simple life forms evolved over time into very complex life forms or that God created man distinct from the animals, each according to their kind? Uh, does it make more sense to assume that man is simply bouncing molecules whose lives bear no real moral significance or that man is made in the image of God, as we've read in Genesis in the beginning, uh, he made them male and female. Uh, or in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So um, does it make more sense to assume that man is simply bouncing molecules whose lives bear no real moral significance or that man is made in the image of God and therefore a moral b- being? Uh, if you are going to take an evolutionary perspective of the world, one of the things to realize is that you now have a great responsibility on your shoulder that I don't believe that you can bear. You have a great responsibility on your shoulders to explain the presence of guilt, shame, condemnation, and an intuitive sense of right and wrong which affects all of us. So if you're going to take that worldview, one of the things that you need to realize is that your worldview does not have a right to morality. Your worldview does not have a right to explain issues of right and wrong, uh, guilt and shame and condemnation. Uh, If you take that worldview, one of the things you realize is that very quickly that there really cannot be in that kind of framework any talk of actual objective truth or objective right and objective wrong. Uh, All you're left with is just... uh, simple preferences that are being put forward that really have no objective moral significance. So, I mean, think about it. Think about it. Like, bacteria doesn't, like, isn't really bared down with guilt and shame and doesn't have some sort of intuitive sense of right and wrong. Bacteria does what it does. Uh, Animals, you know, if you have a lion, I've said this before, a lion comes into the uh, comes into a rival lion's pride, and what does he do? Kills the kills the other male if he can, or dies trying, and and takes all the women. All right? Why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? If he's an animal, who says that it's wrong? Well, the other a lion doesn't like it. Who cares? Right? Isn't it? I mean, isn't the perspective of the evolutionist survival of the fittest? Isn't that the point? I mean, so if the lion can take what he wants and get what he wants. Why does it matter? Why is it wrong? Why are we complaining about it? Now, if we're just simply advanced animals, 
Why can't we just take what we want? What's wrong with war? What's wrong with murder? What's wrong with uh, abuse? What's wrong with these sorts of things? I mean, if, if we're simply just the product of random time and chance with no create, uh, creator above us, if above us there really is only sky, then what in the world does it matter? Why does it matter? Why should I care what you think? Why shouldn't I just do what I want to do and tell you to deal with it, right? That's the point. So um, you, you, if, if you take that world, do you really have no explanation for uh, morality at all? And, and any atheist who's worth anything and is thinking about things in a consistent way, you're going to go the way of nihilism and Nietzsche. Um, like the reality is, if, if, I'm, if, if, if nothing created me and I'm accountable to no lawgiver, then I ought to be able to do what I want and face the consequences of it. And the best you can say is, I don't like it, and I'm going to punish you for it with society. Uh, but whatever you do, you can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. You have no right to speak in judgment over me. Who are you, fellow bouncing molecule person, to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong, right? Well, um, D.A. Carson gave an example one time of a cab ride he had in New York. And in this cab ride, he was he was uh, speaking with uh, uh, speaking with the cab driver and the cab, you know, asking him how's what's going on and how's he doing and everything else. And apparently, his daughter had just died of cancer. And he was a naturalist. He was an individual who really didn't believe in God, an atheist in that way. His daughter just died of cancer, and so D.A. Carson asked him, "Well, how are you processing it? How are you processing what just happened there?" And and the only way thing he could do was just kind of shrug and say, well, I guess it's just bouncing molecules, right? And I guess that's all we are, just bouncing molecules. Uh, and so that's the way he was dealing with it. That's the way he was processing it. And so D.A. Carson, you know, turned to him at that point and said, I guess you'd say the same thing about the um, World Trade Center, right? Because you're in New York at that point. You'd say the same thing like about the terrorists who flew the planes into the buildings, just bouncing molecules, right? Who cares, right? Uh, and, you know, the cab driver almost stopped the cab at that point and say, no, like, uh, uh, that was evil. That was evil. Uh, but Carson's point is, well, how could it be evil if we're just bouncing molecules? Like, that's the point. Uh, uh, the reality is that no one is consistent with an evolutionary worldview. I mean, if we're just bouncing molecules, if that's all that we are. If there's nothing above us but sky, then really, like, who are you to say that I shouldn't just take what I want? Uh, who are, you know... It's easy, in theory, to say, hey, there's no such thing as an objective morality. And if anyone does say that, then I would suggest you take a cup of hot coffee and hold it over their head and say, what do you think now, right? Would it be wrong for me to pour it on your head? <laughs> or or is that just, um, is that right or wrong? Uh, do you have a sense of morality now? Should I do this or should I not do that? Uh, uh, the, the reality is that no one can live up to this because the, the the reality is we are moral beings made in the image of God, and when we sin and we violate God's standards, even if we reject the reality that there is a God, there is guilt that's in, that, that is inside of us, that is inescapable, that we can't run from. We might be able to suppress it in certain instances for long periods of time, uh, but the reality is we're inescapably moral, despite the fact that if we're just the product of time and chance, that's totally irrational. But we're still inescapably moral, and we can't do anything about the problem of guilt and shame. It is just there. Why, why do you think that you have individuals who, uh, if you just want to think about some of the groups in our society, uh, the sexual revolution that's happening within our society, why are they so intent? Why are they so intent on not just 
having the freedom to express their deviant behavior in the way that they want to? Why are they so intent on getting you to celebrate it? Why are they going after the bakers and the cakers and or the bakers and the photographers and everything else? Why are they, why are they going after the bakers and the photographers? Why is it about that? Why are they trying to to sue them? What is it about? Why is California trying to make it um, a law that you can't write a book on? Um, that is, um, you can't write a book or have any information that you're teaching people that says that a homosexual can change their fundamental orientation. Why, why, why is that happening? Because they're moral beings and they can't escape their conscience. And you're an individual who is is feeding into a conscience that's screaming at them. And 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 all they all they can do is tell their conscience to shut up and shut up and shut up, and it won't. And, and so if when they uh, they can't get the conscience to shut up. What do they do? They turn to you and they try to get you to be silent as well because you're a reminder of the guilt that they feel internally. Why do you think it is that so many atheists are so intent, so angry, and so intent on proving you wrong? Why is that the case? Why is it the case? What's happened there? I mean, look, if I believe in a magical unicorn thing that uh, used his rainbow horn to, you know, uh, shoot shoot uh, rays of sparkling color and bring this whole thing into existence. What does it matter? You just kind of look at me and say, oh, okay, uh, poor guy, you know. I mean, that's that's kind of how it is. I, so, I mean, I, I believe in a magical God who's just, uh, you know, totally irrational. That's what you think. Uh, why are you so intent on proving me wrong? Why do you care, right? Just kind of ignore me. Go on your business. Why are you so mad about it, right? Why are you so mad about it? Well, the issue is that man is in, inescapably moral. And so I want to ask, does it make more sense, looking at the world that you see, to assume that man is simply balancing molecules whose lives bear no real moral significance or that man is made in the image of God and therefore a moral being? What, is your, what does the evidence tell you? Look around the world. What does the world tell you? What do people tell you? Which one makes more sense? Um, does it make more sense that all cultures in all times and all places have a shared inescapable pull towards marriage as a result of time and random chance or the created intention of God? Think about that. We're reading through the opening chapter of Genesis. God made them male and female. It's not good for man to be alone, but he made a helper suitable for him. What, is, what makes more sense? Does it make more more sense to say that all cultures and all times and all places have shared inescapable pull towards marriage as a result of time and random chance of the created intention of God. When you look at the animal world, you don't, you're not seeing the same kind of phenomenon uh, there. I mean, you may have isolated examples here or there, uh, but whatever is happening, there's no formal institution and vows exchanged and everything else. Now, certainly we are living in a society that is trying their best to reject the institution of marriage. We are living in a society that is trying its best to delay it as long as possible, put it off until the last possible thing once everything else has been taken care of. Uh, Certainly we uh, live in a culture, in a society that uh, views marriage as a bad thing and fundamentally unfulfilling and uh, unhelpful and just a recipe for disaster. But at the same time, we can't totally overturn it, can we? Can't totally overturn it. Uh, so the, the reality is when you look throughout the history of the world, human beings always seem to have had a basic impulse to get married and have families. And, and that has always been the case, and it seems to be an inescapable reality. And what you have to ask yourself is, 
who explains it better? Who explains why that is, even despite the fact that marriage is unpopular and the rates are getting higher and everything else? What explains it better? Does random time and chance explain this inexplicable need to pair together? Or is it the created intention of God in that way? I mean, like the reality is, I mean, you know, it really could go a very different way than it goes. But this has been the natural and normal institution throughout the scope of human history. Five, does it make more sense that the world that we observe can best be explained by evolution or the historic flood? I talked about this last week. When you look at the world that we live in, which makes more sense? Which, which, um, which starting point best explains the data that you see? So you look around the world and you say, hey, does it make more sense to say that there are massive burials of animals and plants all over the world that human beings use for fossil fuels? So where do we get our oil from? Where do we get our oil from? Massive, uh, buried, organic life forms that have been compressed over time and are now in a form useful to us to make our cars go, right? Well, it makes more sense that those things were massively buried a long time ago all over the place in consistent areas around the world through accidents, random flash floods and things like that, does that make more sense or that there was just some uh, global flood just the way the Bible describes? When you think about all the fossils that are scattered around the world in consistent ways, what makes more sense that there was gradual dust that that was accumulating (laughs) over time and over time that are forming these layers that we see underneath the ground? Uh, and that somehow in the midst of this gradual layers of dust that are forming over time, uh, there just happened to be an animal that was bunches of, uh, like tons of animals that just uh, uniquely were buried and fossilized. Uh, which is the bigger miracle, I want to ask? Uh, there are massive uh, quantities of buried animals and plants uh, all over the world, and that you have, you have marine life, being buried, buried in uh, uh, areas that have no access to the ocean. <laughs> so what makes more sense, that there was a massive global flood, just as the Bible says, or that uh, you're, which, how many miracles do you want to believe, I suppose, is the answer, that there's a massive uh, flood that existed or that maybe, you know, um, a tornado deposited some sharks uh, on the continent at some point. Uh, it, that was so large and, you know, uh, resulted in an immediate burial and everything else. What makes more sense? Come on. <laughs> so it makes more sense that the world that we observe can best be explained by evolution, gradual time over chance, and uh, a bunch of miraculous uh, fossilization experiences or historic flood. Uh, six, is the irrationality of pagans better explained by an evolutionary worldview or Christian one? So is the irrationality of pagans better explained by an evolutionary worldview or a Christian worldview? Now, um, there's so much to say here at this point. But what's interesting is if you do read the news, if you do watch the news or uh, watch the kind of things that people are talking about, one of the things that you realize is that there seems to be an all-out assault on the Bible at every point, right? Right? 
So you think about this. I, I can we, we read Genesis here. We read Genesis the past couple of weeks, Genesis 1. And if you want to understand your society, how do you understand it? Well, it's very simple. What are we doing? We're trying to chuck everything, every, every feature of Genesis 1 that we can. And these are the big things that are going on in our society, right? So in the beginning, God made them male and female. It's not good for man to be alone. So he made him a helper suitable for him, right? So in the beginning, God made them male and female. What are you seeing in society? What do you see happening? We don't even know what male and female means anymore, right? Well, everyone knows what male and female means, but we're not allowed to say what we know, okay? That's the point. We all know. Uh, little kids know exactly what male and female means. Uh, but what's the thing? What, what do you see when you look out at the society right now? What's the styles for women? Right? What's the styles for men? What, what, what is the way to go? Well, I mean, like, in general, what we're trying to do is, uh, for the most part, you're either, uh, well, uh, there, are, there are pushes that are being made to masculinize women and feminize men, right? What is that related to? In the beginning, God made a male and female. Uh, what's happening with the transgender bathroom kind of stuff? What's happening there? We, we're rejecting this basic premise. God, in the beginning, God made them male and female. We can't even tell the difference anymore. It's, just, it's a subjective thing. You can determine who you want to be. You can identify however you want to be, right? Um, marriage. In the beginning, God made them male and female. What do we think? Well, marriage is just a social contract. Who cares? Uh, it was not uniquely designed without any kind of purpose. And so two women want to get married, two men want to get married. What's the problem? You hateful bigot, right? What's happening? We have a world that's dead set in anger on trying to overturn God's basic design for the world. That's, what, that's what's happening. Why is there all the emotion associated with it? Who cares? Right? Like, who cares? Like, all right, you want to go, you know, engage in whatever immorality you want to engage into with a person of the same sex. Go do it. Who's stopping you? Who's stopping you? Why do you want to be married? What does it matter? Like, what's the point, right? Just, just for social advantages. Why, look around at the world you see. We're people in our society who get much more outraged at the death of an ape than we do at the murder of babies coming out of the womb even, right? So, I mean, you can have an abortion doctor who is going to kill a baby attached to the cord. No one cares about it. <laughs> Right? Half the society doesn't care about it because it's a woman's right to choose. Uh, but we're going to get outraged over an ape. And we're going to try to give the ape its fair day in trial. That kind of thing. What's happening there? You, have, you live in a society that cares much more about animals than people. And it's absurd. Okay? What's happening? Look at Genesis. God made a world. Right? Now think about the Bible. What happens with the Bible? God created the world. He says, these are my purposes for the world. Then what does sin do? Sin wants to overturn it all and to, uh, to take what God did and rebel against it. How else can you describe the world that you are looking at but through moral categories as a wholesale revolt and rebellion against how God made the world to be? Okay? Now you say, does that make sense? And, and right, Get rid of God out of it. Why, are, why is there all the passion associated with this? Why do you care so much? Why are you so dead set on doing what's contrary to nature? What is, what's happening there, right? Uh, it's very difficult to explain what's happening 
from an evolutionary worldview perspective, but from a Christian perspective, I can look at the world and it makes total sense. I understand what's happening. God made the world this way. You don't like it because you're a sinner. You don't want his purposes. You want to overturn his rule. You don't want to have a God over you. And so at every single point, you want to uh, take his design for you and reject it and unrighteousness and suppress the truth. And then if I, were, if I speak against what you're doing, what are you going to do? You're going to be mad at me. Why do you think it is that Christians seem to be the one group in our country who, wait, this is not a persecution com- complex. This is just a rational, com- uh, this is just a rational, non-emotional observation. Look around the world. Who is the most persecuted group in our society? <laughs> Us, right? You can say whatever you want to say uh, at a school, but you better not, you, you better not mention God, right? What, what, why not? You can talk about all of, you can talk about any other God you want to talk about. You can talk, like we're, we're living in a society that's so much, you, you can, you can talk about Allah and do whatever you want to talk about if it's, uh, something else, but the Christian God, like we're, we're uniquely, uh, enemies of almost everyone else. And why? What's the issue behind that? Well, it's just doing what the Bible says, right? They hated me, they'll hate you. Not be deceived because the world hates you. They hated their master before you, they'll hate you too. Um, the, the issue is, like, you, you have to ask yourself, when you're looking at the world that you see, you have to ask yourself, does the Bible better explain what you're seeing, or does, uh, or is a, does the Bible provide you a better explanation of the ph- phenomenon that you observe, or is evolution going to provide you a better explanation of what you're going to see? Uh, the final thing, does the Bible provide a better way of life than the alternative? You say, what does that have to do with evolution? Does the Bible provide a better way of life than the alternative? I mean, the reality is, I mean, you can think about this subject as a th- in a theoretical way. You can think about it in a theoretical way and just say, well, well you know, like... Uh, Science says this, the Bible says this, but I want to ask, though, I want to ask you to sit down and, and reflect on this. What is the better way of life? I mean, really do think that if, if we start with the assumption that uh, man spontaneously rose out of nothing uh, over time and changed from simple life forms to uh, the world that we see spontaneously rose out of nothing and over uh, millions of years of time and chance and everything else, we've gradually evolved uh, consciousness and everything else. What provides a better way of life? The Bible or a godless universe? You know, one of the things to realize is that when God gave his law to the people of the Israelites, uh, he, it is said of his law that the nations around would look at this law and say, what nation is it that has such a wise God with such wise statutes and such... Uh, wise rules. Uh, there really is a wisdom to the Bible that is very difficult to overturn. Um, it's very difficult to under, overturn the wisdom and, of the biblical lifestyle. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who are doing the research and looking out at the world, and 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 if you say what what are some of the biggest for example, if you say, what are some of the biggest causes of some of the societal problems that we see? Uh, you know, you see sociologists and psycho- psychologists who are going to tell you that one of the most significant uh, factors of, that are related to poverty is the uh, single, single motherhood or single parent families. So you, you say, what is the, one of the most statistical, statist- statistically reliable predictions of poverty? It's going to be single parent families. What does the Bible say? 
man from the beginning. God created male and female. Come together. Form one flesh. Create a family. Man, man's going to leave father and mother. They're going to be one flesh. They're going to produce offspring. Uh, all the research tells us that that's wise. That's right. And that's the way to build a society. Uh, we have many, many individuals who want to reject that and have wanted to reject that for a long time. Uh, you look at the project of affirmative action. In many ways, affirmative action has... Um, incentivized single motherhood. It's financially incentivized single motherhood and it's re- resulted in a lot of the problems that we see happen. Uh, and, and, and when you look at the Bible, you say, hey, you know, person ain't willing to work, don't let them eat, right? So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Look at the way of life the Bible provides and it really does, it is a remarkable thing. I, uh, you know, no matter... What the atheist tells me, I mean, the atheist, evolutionary naturalist, is going to tell me that above me is only sky, and that somehow the good life is found in, in trying to realize that, that I just need to throw off the shackles and the oppression uh, that comes from a biblical worldview. And, and the reality is that I lived that life before I became a Christian. I lived that life. I lived the life uh, that says that, you know, I don't even know if God exists anymore, and and I'm going to do things my own way. And, and one of the things that I learned from experience was that the way of the transgressor is hard. That's what I learned. I learned from experience that the way of the transgressor is hard. And that just, you know, living for me, doing whatever I want to do, it's hard. It results in shame and condemnation and difficulty and pain. And, um, and, and no amount of looking myself in the mirror and saying, hey, you're a good person and uh, you have fresh breath and white teeth and everyone likes you, could fix the fundamental problem in my soul, right, that, that, that needed fixing. So I'm looking at the mirror and I can't, I can't get myself to fix this fundamental problem of guilt and shame and condemnation. But what the Bible comes along and, and does is it, the Bible tells us that if we repent of our sins and believe the good news, Jesus died to save sinners. If we do that, then you can be forgiven and you can have that burden cleared and you don't have to bear it any longer. And there's a a liberating freedom that comes with that sort of knowledge that the evolutionary worldview never provided for me. All the evolutionary worldview provided for me was a license towards selfishness and a license towards... Uh, guilt and shame and, uh, you know, I did everything the wrong way. Uh, but then when you think about the, the the life that the Bible provides to you, it does provide you love. It does promise that love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and kindness and faithfulness and uh, self-control. And, and, and there is something in us that in, inescapably realizes that is the path to the good life, uh, and, and no matter how much we want to reject that and look for look for that sort of thing and other things, uh, it is it's it's impossible to do. So as we think about this subject in general, the point is just that this is not a neutral subject that that uh, really has no imp, you know implications for for life. I mean, you really do have to ask yourself: Who are you going to believe? Who has the best explanation for the world that you see? Uh, it, it does does the godless universe explain it, or does the Christian worldview explain it? And the good news is that there really is a God who did make the heavens and the earth and who stands ready to forgive us if we ask. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you that you were there, you've spoken, you're not silent. I pray that you would help us to appreciate the reality that you wanted us to understand your world and you've given us information that we need in order to make sense of it, Lord. Uh, we know that uh, apart from your revelation, we're going to hopelessly get things wrong. We're going to overturn your basic design for the world. And all it's going to do is result in pain and chaos, Lord. We pray that you would forgive us for that. I pray that you would forgive us for uh, our sinful rebellion towards you. I pray that you would help make us into a people who love you more and more every day and that uh, are more aligned to your purposes. Uh, in your son's name I pray. Amen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.